Today, we are finishing a mini-series all about what happens one minute after you die. Last week, we talked about the three things that happen a minute after your physical body dies, and that is that your physical body dies, your soul separates from your body, and that we all, you included, face judgment from God. We talked about that in the the New Testament, it seems like there's two main judgments. And the first one, the great white throne judgment, is all about relationship with Jesus. When that that book, whether it's literal or, or, or symbolic, is opened in heaven on the day that you die, if your name is in that book, it means you have called on the grace of Jesus. You have relationship with Jesus, your name's in that book, and you pass then on to the next judgment. But if it's if it's not... We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit today. The next judgment then, if your name's in the book, is the judgment seat of Christ. And that's all about if you have relationship with Jesus, what you then do with your life. That we're always only ever saved by grace, but we are also rewarded for our works. But, but what happens next? After both or one of those judgment, what happens next? Hell heaven, what do we know about those things? Now, as as we raise this topic, I know it can be confronting. I know it can be scary. And I also know that it can be painful. Because even though what we're talking about today is is really about, it's about us. We're thinking about ourselves as individuals because we're the ones who are listening and we're the ones who can respond to God. But I know that as we talk about this, you're going to be thinking about other people as well people that you love, and some of them who have already died. Here's what we're going to do. Here's our approach this morning. We're going to look at passages from the New Testament because the people who wrote them were friends of Jesus. They saw him. They heard his teaching. They knew that he died, and then they saw him and met him again after he had risen from the dead. They're eyewitnesses of Jesus, and also the Holy Spirit inspired what they wrote. And so as we do that, it, it will be exciting, it will be scary, it will be painful in different, different ways, this message. But as we do that, as we look at those passages, I want to pray that that same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing would help us understand and process the things that we're talking about this morning. So let's pray and we'll ask him to do that and then we'll get into it. So God, we invite your Spirit First of all, um, to guide my words. Would you guide the words that come out of my mouth? And then would you guide our thoughts, the meditations of our hearts as we think about and process what we're reading and talking about today? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was at uni, um, my church on the Gold Coast put on a theatre production called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. I think it happened in other places around Australia, so you may have come across it. This is a few years ago now. Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, big stage, actors, lights, loud music, all designed to scare the hell out of people. That was its purpose. For example, in one of the scenes, there's a a young couple having a romantic evening in a park. And the girl says something like, oh, my psychic said that there was romance in the air. And the guy says, you know, don't you know that that psychics are dangerous and God isn't interested in you having anything to do with them? And as they're having this conversation, a man appears with a gun. 
and he steals the young woman's purse and he shoots them both dead. And the next scene of the play, they're in front of the pearly gates of heaven. And the, the guy, the boy, is invited in, but the girl is dragged away by a laughing Satan with two demons into the red cellophane fires of hell. As the boy calls out, I told you so, I tried to warn you. As I said, the play was designed to scare the hell out of you, and for many people it did. For years afterwards, I heard story after story of people saying it was that night that helped them get right with God and pray a prayer of commitment to Jesus and, and turn their life around. Um, but but it, it wasn't a good representation of heaven or, or of hell or of God from what we read in the Bible. And then what I heard for years after that was story after story of people walking away from that fear-based decision. But it certainly got people thinking. And it's interesting to, to see what, what do people think about heaven and what do people think about hell? I don't have any stats for you from Australia, but I have some from America. The stats are fairly similar. Each survey over the last 20 years, over 70% of people in the US believe in heaven, that heaven exists, while only 60% of people believe that hell exists. But then only 0.5%, so half of 1% of people believe that they are going to hell. So in nearly everyone's mind, if hell exists, and around 60% of people believe it does, if hell exists, it's for other people. It's, it's not for me, it's for terrorists, it's for murderers, it's for rapists, but it's not, it's not for me or the people that I love because God would never do that to us. Hell, if it exists, is only for a few people while most of us will be in heaven. But Jesus said something that might imply otherwise. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and the gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Jesus speaks with a sense of urgency that, that you and I don't have. He speaks with a sense of importance about life on earth. I think what Jesus is saying is not just about then, it's about now leading to then. But we don't have that same kind of urgency or importance. We don't like to think about heaven, and especially we don't like to think about hell. We like to stay focused on life right now. But that can lead to a lack of perspective and it can lead to some bad decisions. But one of the reasons that we don't like thinking about hell is because it raises a, a difficult question. If God is good, if, if God is love and we believe that he is, why does hell exist? That's a question that we need to talk about. And, and I don't think at all that I could satisfy your curiosity or your concern about it in one message today. I'm not going to try and do that. But I do want to, want to start by just busting two myths today about why hell exists. Myth number one is that we think that hell is Satan's playground. So many of us, when we picture Satan, the devil, we think about a mean guy in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork. And he lives in hell. It's his playground. It's his place. 
But that's not at all how the authors of the Bible describe him or describe hell. They describe Satan as the embodiment of everything that is evil. He is the persona that represents sin and evil. So he appears first at the very beginning of the Bible in the Old Testament as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. The one who enticed Adam and Eve to first question God and reject God. He's the one who brought about the introduction of of anything bad into the world. He is behind every addiction, all abuse, every bit of fear and pain and shame. He doesn't cause it specifically. That's not what he does. He doesn't have that kind of power. We can't blame him for everything that goes wrong in our lives, but but he's, he's involved. In the Bible, he's called the prince of darkness, the devil, the destroyer, the deceiver, the dragon, the dark angel, your adversary, your enemy, your tempter, the wicked one, the father of lies, the angel of the abyss. He wants to see you ruined. He wants to see you without joy, without faith, without health. He wants to see you ruined financially and have broken relationships and damaged children. And hell exists for God to deal with Satan. The apostle John saw a vision of this in Revelation chapter 20. Here's what he said. He said, then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So why does hell exist? Not to be the devil's playground. Not for him to reign and have fun and and torture people. Hell exists for God to deal forever with Satan. Myth number two is that God sends good people to hell. Now, this is where things get really complicated. Many people would say that hell doesn't seem fair. You know, I know, I know someone and they're a good person, nicer than a lot of Christians that I know. They do good things, so God would never send them to hell. And, and I get that. I, I think that about people that I know. But when we think that way, when we think about ourselves, when <clears throat> we try and measure ourselves, or we think about other people that we know, we want to make God like us. You know, a God who can just justify lifestyles, justify decisions. God who just gives a little wink towards sin. He understands. He's, he's holy and righteous and everything, but he's cool. He gets it. Sure, he has standards, but they don't really matter. You you can just do whatever you want, anything. Do whatever you want. But here's what we have to understand. God is both loving and he's also just. You know, last week we talked about the word judgment as as the word that, that means a judge making a wise and considered conclusion. And God is the wisest, the most loving, the most just able to do that. He's righteous and holy. So hell does not exist so that God can send people there because he feels like it. Hell exists for God to deal appropriately with injustice and to deal with anyone who doesn't want anything to do with him. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, <clears throat> he said, Jesus will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who, re- who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. Hell exists for people that don't want anything to do with God. If they've rejected him in their life on earth, then God will honor that in eternity. But to be apart from God in eternity, for God to to remove himself will not be a good experience. For God to remove all of his goodness and love and grace will be a horrible existence in the life after this one. The famous author of the last century, C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he also wrote this, this line. He said, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. And so while we read this passage and other ones like it as God sending people or God judging, um, just to note, someone's at the door, if someone could open it, please. These doors also locked from the inside. <laughs> we, we read these passages and, and others like it. As This is what God is doing. God's sending people and then locking the door from, from the outside. C.S. Lewis saw it differently. He saw hell as the natural result for people that didn't want anything to do with God. People who wanted their independence. They wanted their freedom from God and his goodness. And so God will ultimately give them what they want. So for people who say to God in this life, or sorry, who don't say to God in this life, your will be done. Instead, they want their will done. In the end, in eternity, God will say to them, okay, well, your will be done. And they'll spend eternity apart from him. If human beings reject him, God will honor that in this life and in eternity. But right now, even though the world is fallen, even though the world is broken, including me, we still have something of the goodness of God. Every good gift we have comes from God. But for God to remove all of that from our experience and, and, and our existence, that, that place is called hell. So God doesn't send good people to hell. Apart from God, we're all on a trajectory to reject him, be independent from him. And it's not our goodness that gets us out of there. You know, the most famous quote from Jesus explains this. In John chapter 3, verse 16, he said, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to send good people to hell, not to even judge the world, but to save the world through him. God didn't send Jesus into the world to send people to hell, but to save people through him. And, and so that's why we want to introduce people to Jesus. And it's not, it's not really about saving them from the horrors of hell, but what it's really about is helping them to experience the grace and the goodness and the love of God, the mercy, the holiness, the righteousness of God in this life and in the life to come. So just to recap, God doesn't send good people to hell. God honors our decision and will remove his presence from anyone who doesn't accept him in this life. 
But for everyone who does accept him, God is preparing a place that is full of his presence. It's the opposite of removing his presence. Heaven is full of his presence without even a hint or an idea of anything bad or anything evil. So we've already busted two myths today. Let's keep going. I've got a couple about heaven. Myth number three is that heaven is boring. The same John who saw the vision of the horrors of hell also saw a vision of the glory of heaven. Here's what he wrote in Revelation 21. He saw then, he said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things, they're gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. That, that sounds good, but somehow I still grew up thinking that heaven was going to be boring. I thought when you die and go to heaven, there's going to be a long line of people waiting in the clouds, waiting to see if your name's in the book, to see if you can get into the pearly gates. I guess my theology of heaven was from jokes, it would seem. Um, That's what the jokes are all about, the lions and the the pearly gates. St. Peter will be there, check your name. If it's on the list, you get a, a robe and you get to go in, hooray, to sit on a cloud and sing forever. Like, there'll still be some redeeming features, but that does not sound like my idea of a good eternity. Endless church service, hooray. I thought that heaven was going to be boring. How in the world are we going to enjoy that for a day, let alone a thousand generations? Why do, why do we think that? Why do so many of us think that heaven is boring? Um, it, it could be because we think that God is boring. God's a killjoy. God robs everything of fun. But what I hope that you'll understand today is that, is that heaven won't be boring. It'll be the opposite of boring because heaven is the absence of everything evil and it's the presence of God. And so think about the things that you enjoy on earth. Think about, think about, just sit here right now. Imagine that, that you had in your pocket the cash to pay for your favorite meal at your favorite fast food restaurant. No, any, anywhere, your favorite restaurant. You could, at the end of this service, on the way to the picnic, get takeaway. You, whatever it is, you, you get to enjoy that with the taste buds that God gave you. God gave you those things to enjoy the food that you're dreaming about right now. When you feel joy, when you laugh, when you feel love, these are gifts from God in heaven who gives good gifts to his children on earth. And when we're in heaven, we'll enjoy all of those gifts that we enjoy now, but they'll be even better. They'll be without anything evil, no calories, all gone. Nothing accidentally burnt. The presence of everything good, the opposite really of boredom. Now imagine with me the most beautiful place that you've ever been to on this planet. Mananda. Maybe not Mananda. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about um, in March going back to my hometown of Madang in Papua New Guinea. And in the late afternoon, sitting there by the water, with the tropical islands like almost a stone's throw across the water 
in the kind of temperature that is shorts, t-shirt and thongs degrees all year round. And by this point in the afternoon, all the missionaries had gone so I could enjoy a beer. Don't tell them, by the way, if they're watching online or happen to be here. That's, that's like one of the best places I could imagine. Heaven is so much better than any tainted place we could experience here on earth. One of the best ways to think about it, I reckon, and, and I, think, I think we find this in the Bible, is if you rewind all the way to the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, God's intention for creation, everything perfect, walking face to face with God in his presence, with, with perfect relationship with other human beings and with important, meaningful work to do, that, that's what Adam and Eve experienced before the introduction of anything evil. And heaven is God restoring the world back to that perfection. We'll have the glory of working for Jesus in ways that we enjoy. You know, right now work can be good, but work can often be a curse. But in heaven, it'll be a blessing like it was intended to be. In other words, whatever productive things you enjoy doing right now, you'll get to do those in heaven, in some, some form of job that honors God and, and serves Jesus. So if you like gardening, you'll grow tomatoes that look like they're on steroids. <laughs> if you happen to like singing, I'm sure they'll be singing, hopefully not forever, but they'll be singing for you. We'll have our gifts and our passions and we'll get to use them in ways that are an incredible blessing to us and to each other and to God in ways that are glorious and productive as we rule and reign with Christ. And what will you not find in heaven? (laughs) But when you run, Jaira, no sweat, no pain, no complaining. I imagine when you preach in heaven, no hecklers. (laughs) There'll be no tears. No need for tears. No shame. No pain, no sorrow, no sickness, no stress, no depression. No more sleepless nights. No more going to the toilet at three in the morning. No more anxiety, no more abuse, no more heartache, no more Mondays, no more divorce, no more racism, no more injustice, no more violence, no more bad breath. Heaven is the presence of God, which means it's the presence of everything good and the absence of anything bad. Whatever you think of heaven, it'll be better. Now, I said earlier that heaven is not the natural destination for all people. All around the world today, people wrongly believe that their natural, normal destination is heaven. I mean, I mean, good people are going to heaven, right? I mean, I, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anyone. If they did, they deserved it. <laughs> not a drug dealer. I haven't abused anyone. I'm not a bad person. So heaven is the default destination, Right? That's, that's our last myth, myth number four, is that good people go to heaven when they die. You might have heard me say before, when I grew up, I had a t-shirt given to me by some friends from Texas in, uh, in America. It said, if you lead a good life, say your prayers and go to church. When you die, you'll go to Texas. 
But remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. We read this earlier. He said, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. The truth is good people don't go to heaven when they die. Who goes to heaven? Forgiven people. Forgiven people go to heaven when they die. The Apostle Paul wrote it this way in his letter to the Roman church in chapter 3. He said, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace makes us freely right in his sight. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. So people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. All around the world, every single person, how many of us have sinned? Every single one. That, That includes me. A dozen times today, before I even stood up on this stage, I fell short of God's glorious standard. I'm not a good person. Not all the time, not not most of the time, not enough of the time. Whatever you determine, however you measure it as, as good or bad, when you compare it to the standards of God, I've fallen short. But even so, God in his grace, not not me in my goodness and, and being good enough, not me in my efforts and doing enough, but God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight through Jesus as the sacrifice for our badness, for our sin. There are some of you today that live with a heavy fear of what will happen when this life is over. I grew up under that fear. Scared to death of what would happen to me. What if I died right now in this moment? Have have I done enough good? Have I avoided enough badness? Have I remembered enough of my mistakes and mentioned them to Jesus so that those ones are forgiven? Well, gee, I hope I die right now that I'm in a good place and I'm a good place with God as opposed to dying five minutes earlier or, or five minutes after and just paranoidly afraid of dying at the wrong time. I I go to church, I try to do good, I mess up, I I apologize, I I recommit my life to Jesus. Have I been good enough? Have I confessed enough? And and it took me years to, to understand the big picture of what Jesus and his apostles were really saying, that that I could never be good enough. That I I could never be good enough. And Jesus didn't die for the specific things that I do wrong. He did, but, but that's not the big picture of why he died. Even, even if I could capture all the things I did wrong and, and confess them to him, that in itself wouldn't be enough. As, as perfect as Jesus is, I'm the complete opposite. And even when I'm not aware of my sin, even if I can't capture them and I can't confess them, even then, sin still influences my life. Even if I think I'm doing great, think I haven't messed up, think I'm, I'm good enough for God, even then, sin affects my life and my eternity. I need rescuing from this. It's not really that I need forgiveness from my sins. I need salvation from sin. 
Because sin affects everything about my life, whether I participate with it actively or not. And Jesus lived and died and rose again so that anyone, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how dark your life is, no matter how good you've tried to be, you can be set free from the oppression of sin and evil. And you can be set free from the fear of what happens one minute after you die. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, he said, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I'll also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I'll also deny before my father in heaven. So Jesus is saying, if you talk about me, acknowledge me, claim to follow me in front of people, they'll do the same for you. I'll talk about you in front of my father in heaven. But if you're ashamed of me in front of people, if you ignore me, if you, if you don't want anything to do with me, then that's how I'll represent you one minute after you die. I will respect your decisions in this life. So if you want your life to change today, and if you want your eternal destiny to change, what you need to do is to acknowledge him, to acknowledge Jesus as the son of God to accept him as the only one that can save you from sin and from a life that ends with God honoring your choice and removing himself from you. And Jesus promised that when you turn to him in this way, he hears your prayer. He sets you free from sin and he begins the process of making everything about your life brand new, a process that finds its ultimate fulfillment in the glory of heaven. I wonder if there's anyone here today ready to acknowledge Jesus in this way. And even if you have a hundred times before, just to once again be in that place of saying that this is what I believe. This is how I want to live my life. And, and, and even though I've tried, I've fallen short. And this is today is not about saying, all right, now this time, this time I have the willpower, but this time just falling back on that grace of Jesus saying, I know I'll never be able to do what I think is enough or he thinks is enough, but that, that's okay because I'm falling back on his grace today. For any, <clears throat> excuse my voice today, <clears throat> for anyone in that, that place this morning, before I finish, I just want to lead us in a prayer, a prayer that you could agree with me as I pray it. Jesus, today I realize that I could never be good enough. And there are some ways I'm really aware of, but I also get that even if I nailed those things in my life, I'd still not be good enough. And so I thank you that you came, Jesus not to judge me for my sin, but to save me from it. And so today I put my trust in what you did on the cross as the sacrifice for me. That you forgive my sins, but even more importantly, you set me free from sin.
Help me to experience this freedom and to follow you in every part of my life. And to live with the urgency and the hope, knowing that you promise to acknowledge me on the day that I die. In your name. Amen. You know, there, <clears throat> there are no formulas for this, but Jesus did talk about the, the, the principle of mutual acknowledgement, which means if you prayed that prayer today, but you've never t- told anyone about that, maybe because you only just did it, then what he wants you to do is to be bold to acknowledge and tell someone about the, the, the spiritual place you reached today in that prayer. Um, so I want to invite you to do that. If, if you're not sure who to tell, I'd love to hear it after the service, or Laura would, um, but you might know someone that you want to go and tell today. Um, as I close today, as I finish this series, um, as I make the team wait awkward, awkwardly behind me, um, someone sent me a message this morning. Jeff Jeans sent me a message this morning, um, and he was reminded of, of this story, um, and he shared it with me, and I asked for permission to pass it on. He said, when I was a boy of about nine years old, after mum left us, I had this real fear every night that maybe I would die and not wake up. But every night when dad would say goodnight to us, he would say, see you in the morning. And I trusted dad that much that if he said he would see me in the morning, then I must not be going to die. Which is is beautiful trust for a nine-year-old boy. It was really out of his control but he trusted as he was able to. And every single one of us, even if you're a 99-year-old boy, when we go to sleep at night, we may not wake up, especially if you're a 99-year-old boy. But it could happen to me, it could happen to any one of us. But the same as Jeff's dad said to him, it's as if God says to us, if you trust in Jesus, I'll see you in the morning. I'll see you. I'll acknowledge you one minute after you die. I hope your fear about life after death has been relieved by this two-week series. And I hope your urgency about life after death for your own life and your sharing with others has increased through this series. May God bless you with relief from fear and with an increase of urgency that what you believe about eternity changes the way you live today. Thanks.